Well, good morning. Today we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 13. And today will really be an introduction to the seven parables related to the kingdom of heaven that are found in this chapter. But in order to really do justice to this chapter, we need to take a step back and look at the book of Matthew in its entirety because there is about to be a major shift occurring in this book. And there is a really a pivotal shift that God will be moving in the way that he deals with the nation of Israel and with the way that he deals with the world as a whole. And so we need to look back on the book of Matthew in its entirety in order to be able to really fully appreciate the entirety of the seven parables that we'll be looking at in this 13th chapter. So as a recap, Matthew uh, has been really pointing to the fact that Jesus Christ is king. It's been really the theme, if you will, for the book, that Jesus Christ is the king. He is the rightful heir to the throne of David. In chapter 1, it's outlined that Jesus is in the messianic line, which means that he is the offspring of David, and therefore Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of David. God promised back in uh, 2 Samuel uh, 7 to David that he would establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That was a prophecy to someone in the line of David that would come and they would reign forever. This was... um, clearly uh, stated, although David never really saw this fulfillment in his lifetime. But finally, we have here someone born in the line of David, and that is Jesus. And then we had, in chapter 2, the wise men who studied the prophecies, and they were led to come and confirm the fact that Jesus indeed is the king. Chapter 3, you have John being uh, the forerunner to the king, proclaiming to the nations that indeed this is the Messiah, this is the one from heaven. Chapter 4, you see uh, really the character of who this king is. He is tempted by Satan, uh, and he shows himself perfect. He shows himself sinless. He shows himself to triumph over any temptation that Satan pointed to uh, in his way. You then uh, see in, verse, or in chapters 5 through 7, Jesus speaks authoritatively as a king showing what he expects of those who are part of his kingdom, shows what it looks like to be a follower of his. Chapters 8 through 10, we then saw Jesus' miracles, him displaying his power over demons, over the sick, over uh, the winds and the waves. No matter what it is, he's showing authoritatively that he has control over these things. And it's interesting, though, that as he's fulfilling these prophecies, As he's showing his credentials, that he is indeed who he says he is, we see this mounting rejection against him. We see constantly over these chapters that more and more, the more light that the Lord shows to the people, the harsher and the more wide the rejection becomes. It then uh, then shows in chapter 11, uh, really, where it's starting to reach its, its, its uh, its pinnacle point, where he then pronounces woes on the people because they're just continuously uh, rejecting him, continuously uh, ignoring all the signs, all the evidence. He had given them more than enough proof, and yet they refused to accept him as their Messiah and as their king. And yet, even in chapter 11, we see God in his mercy offering an invitation of them to come unto him 
At the end of the chapter, he offers this invitation of salvation and of grace. And finally, chapter 12, it reaches uh, really the peak of rejection where they even accuse Jesus of having a demon and being satanic. And at the end of it, he pronounces judgments on them for their willful rejection of him. And so that's just a real quick summary of the book of Matthew that brings us to where we are today. In the end, if you think back on all of it, Matthew is trying to point to this idea that Jesus Christ is the king. Jesus wanted a relationship with the nation of Israel. He would be their God. They would be his people if they were willing. But they were not willing, as we know. He came as their king, and they rejected him. And in rejecting Jesus as their king, Israel has in turn rejected his kingdom. Because you cannot separate the kingdom from the king. And so... Being that we're in chapter 13, a logical question to answer is, if Jesus came to offer the kingdom, of, uh, the kingdom to Israel, if he came to offer that, and they rejected that, and they refused to accept him as their king, what then happened to the kingdom? We know that the Bible speaks about a time where Jesus will come again, where he will reign literally on this earth as king of kings and lord of lords. But what happened to the kingdom between his rejection the first time, and his second coming. Well, that's kind of what we'll be discussing partly today in order to really get a good overview before we address this chapter. And so, to answer this question adequately, we need to first understand a few things about the kingdom of heaven. First of all, the phrase the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God are one and the same. They are used interchangeably, and I know many people are confused by it, but I just want to show you why I say that, because we see parallel passages in Luke 13, where he also describes the same parables discussed here, such as the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the leaven. And in those same parables that are parallel to this uh, chapter, the Lord Jesus uses the phrase, the kingdom of God. And here in Matthew, he uses the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. And so it's fair to assume or to uh, take from that that the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are interchangeably used and are one and the same. The second thing that we need to know is that in the kingdom of heaven, there are really two spheres, if you will, of people in the kingdom of heaven. There is this larger sphere that includes everyone that outwardly professes to recognize God's rule over their life in some fashion or another. And right now, I looked up, uh, there's roughly 8 billion people in this world. Out of those 8 billion people, roughly, 2.4 billion people right now claim to be Christian. That comes out to be 29% roughly of the world. So 29% of this world lives in what this larger sphere that we call the kingdom of God. They all claim to be Christian. They all claim to know God in some way. They all claim to you know, follow his rule or at least acknowledge his rule of some sort. But as you're probably well aware, not everyone who claims to know God outwardly truly knows him inwardly. The number of genuine believers, if you were to really filter through that number of 2.4 billion people, you'd find that it's much smaller than that. For example, if you eliminated people who believe in works for salvation or that somehow works attribute to salvation, you would probably lose half of those people. 
If you then eliminated people based on uh, the view that Jesus is not God, you'd lose probably another quarter. If you eliminated people based on the fact of, you know, uh, you can have your sin in Jesus too kind of theology, you'd lose even more people. And so you find that the more you filter through the different, you know, false teachings, the more you'd find that there's a very small percentage of that 2.4 billion that truly know the Lord Jesus. And so out of this 2.4 billion, the majority are not truly saved. In fact, we read about this uh, just a few months ago in Matthew 7. It says that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So there are people, like I said, that claim to know the Lord, but they don't truly know him. Why is that? It's because they don't do the will of the Father in heaven. The will of the Father in heaven is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. His will is that men would repent of their sins, turn to Jesus by faith, and accept his free gift of eternal life. So not everyone in the kingdom of God or in the kingdom of heaven genuinely knows him. In fact, the vast majority don't. So we have this larger sphere, 2.4 billion people, and then within that, within that larger sphere, we have a much smaller group of those who not only outwardly profess to know God, but also inwardly have a reality of him changing their lives. These are those that do the will of the Father. These are those that trust on the Lord Jesus as their Savior. Those that acknowledge they are a sinner in need of saving. Those that trust the Lord and his death alone for their forgiveness of sins. These are those that by grace through faith alone believe in Jesus Christ. These are those who are true believers found within this larger encompassing group called the kingdom of heaven. And so we have these two groups, those who claim to know Jesus outwardly and those who truly know him inwardly. It's also important to note that in each and every one of these periods of time in the kingdom of heaven, there remains those two spheres of people, the true and the false believers. And we'll see that all throughout this chapter that Jesus likens really in, in one of the first parables, or second parable, this world to a wheat field. You have this wheat field, and it all looks good as you're looking out on it. It all looks like genuine crops. Everything looks like it's good. But mixed in between the wheat is these tares, worthless things, things that gen aren't the genuine thing. They aren't any good. They'll be blown away with the wind. But mixed in with each one of these things, you have the wheat and the tare. And so it is in all stages of the kingdom of heaven. You have, whether it be the Old Testament, you see the true believers and the unbelieving. You have, in the, today's day, you can see there are definitely true believers and there are those who have no idea who, the, who Christ is, but they simply check the box of Christian in their lives. And even in uh, the millennial reign, we read about it in Revelation 20, that there will be the unbelievers with the believers mixed together. You have, uh, after Satan is... Uh, released from being bound a thousand years, it says that Satan then goes and deceives the nation and the unbelievers, it says, are as numerous as the sand of sea and they literally go together and gather an army and go to battle against Christ. And so we know ultimately that Christ wins, but the point being that no matter what period of time you're in, these two always coexist, coexist together, the true and the false, the genuine and the fake. And so here we go uh, into the parables, 
realizing that in the kingdom of heaven, there are the two existing together. The next thing to know is that, and really it answers the question that we asked initially of, if Jesus came to offer the kingdom to Israel and they rejected it and they refused him as their king, what then happened to the kingdom? Well, that, this, this next point will hopefully answer that. We are currently living in what some would call the parentheses or the interim phase of the kingdom. This is the mystery that is spoken of in this chapter. Uh, it's not <clears throat> that the church is in any way mystical or is in any way hard to comprehend, but it's something that was not known before. It's something that was not revealed to the people until this point. The Jews, they knew that God had promised to reign on this earth, and during his first coming, he came down, he was rejected as their king, but God being faithful to his word, it says will one day come again in a second coming where he will literally reign on this earth as king of kings and lord of lords, this is a period of time known as the millennium. But what happens between his first coming and his second coming was not known to the people at the time. This was something that was not seen in the Old Testament. This is something that was first, for the first time being revealed to them. It was not known that God would now be turning his attention from the Jews to the Gentiles and that the Gentiles would be fellow heirs of the promise of God along with the Jews. This was something that was a mystery that is now being revealed in this chapter. And so we live currently in this parentheses or this mystery called the church age. And while the church age is a part of the kingdom of heaven, I cannot stress enough that the church is not the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, at least in its entirety. Because as we know, the kingdom of heaven spans throughout thousands of years before today, going into the Old Testament, and it continues on into the millennium, and even past that. The kingdom of heaven really began in the Old Testament where it was prophesied of a coming Messiah. And so the church and the kingdom of heaven, they are not one and the same because the church, like I said, goes beyond just today. Or the, the kingdom of heaven goes beyond just the church. But just for this period of time alone, they are one and the same. And so it's important to note also that some people might wonder, well, is it different now how people are saved as opposed to how it was in the Old Testament? Or is it different now how people will be saved then in the millennium as, a, as opposed to how they are now? But it's important to note that just as it was in the Old Testament, just as it is today, and just as it will be then, we are still saved the same exact way, and it's by faith. The only difference is that in the Old Testament, Jesus hadn't come to this earth yet. He was only merely prophesied to be coming. And so when they believed by faith, they were believing without seeing the fulfillment of God's promise yet. But by faith in God's character, by faith in his righteousness, by faith in his justice, by faith in his mercy, they simply believed in him sight unseen. It tells us in, uh, in the first few chapters of um, Genesis that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So whether it's the Old Testament, whether it's the church age, or whether it's the millennium, in the end, all people come to salvation by faith. Nothing has changed. So another question that I came to mind too as I was thinking through this is, if Israel rejected their Messiah, if he rejected their kingdom, then why didn't God just eliminate the kingdom altogether? 
And the, the answer that I came back to time and time again is that God will not eliminate the kingdom altogether because God keeps his promises. God made a promise all the way back in the Old Testament where he promised that he would provide a kingdom that would endure forever. And God, being faithful to his promise, would establish that throne on his kingdom forever. He would not allow that promise to go void or go bad. He was going to fulfill the promise as he said to David. And we also know that there's another prophecy in Zechariah 12 where God prophesied of a time where Israel will look upon me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for his firstborn. So this really speaks of a time where Israel will finally come to its senses, finally realize that they have crucified their Savior. They have crucified the Messiah. And at this point, they will finally come to their senses and severely mourn over their rejection. And they will repent of their sins. This is in line with what it says in Romans 11, where it tells of a time during the tribulation period and millennium where all Israel will be saved. This is a time where all believing Israel will finally turn and recognize the Lord Jesus as their Savior. The point being that through all of these things, God is faithful to keeping his promises. He has prophesied that these things will come to pass, and so we can bank on it happening. Psalm 119 points us to the fact that your faithfulness endures to all generations. So through it all, despite the horrendous rejection, despite Israel's failure to see the truth that God was trying to present to them, God is not done with them. He is faithful, and he will keep his promises to them. He is a reliable, dependable, and faithful God. And so that was a very long introduction to the book of Matthew and also the chapter that we're going to be addressing today. But I feel it's necessary in order for us to actually understand what we're about to be reading in these next seven weeks as we go over these different parables. So today I'm actually not going to be covering a parable. I will just simply be introducing the idea of parables and the purpose behind it. And so if you will turn with me to Matthew chapter 13 and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 17. Matthew 13, verse 1 says, On the same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea, and a great multitudes were gathered together to him, so that he got into a boat and sat. And the whole multitude stood on the shore. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth on the earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because he had no root, they withered away. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mystery of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing they will hear, and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. 
For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it, and hear what you hear and did not hear it. So this is a large section of verses, and I actually, like I said, won't be covering the parables today because Michael next week has the opportunity to explain the parable of the sower uh, in verses 3 through 9 because it goes along with the explanation he has. So instead of focusing on that, I'm actually going to be focusing on verses 1 and 2 and then 10 through 17. So, like I said, the main purpose of today's message is to focus on why did Jesus give parables? Why did he speak in parables? So let's just look at verses 1 and 2 first. I know Noad spoke on this earlier, but it'd be good to look back on this. It says in verse 1 and 2, On the same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea, and great multitudes were gathered together to him, so that they got into a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. Now as I read that initially, I wondered to myself, why was this even written? Why are these details even included? Uh, you know, he could have simply just started in verse 3 and then went on from that point. But I do firmly believe that each and every word of the Bible is significant, and I believe that there is great insight to the location of where Jesus was and to the crowd that he was speaking to. Um, <clears throat> it starts off by reminding us that this is the same day that Jesus did all the things in chapter 12, all of the things of him condemning the Jews for their unbelief. It's the same day that Jesus accused the Jews, or, or the Jews accused Jesus of being demon-possessed. It's the same day where Jesus healed the demon-possessed man. This was a rather hectic day for the Lord, a rather busy day for him. But it's also interesting to note the location of where he went next. Um, if, you, if you look back on Jesus' ministry, you'll notice that the majority of his indoor ministry was done in the temple. A lot of, the, the, a lot of his ministry from this po- before this point was done in the temple, with the Jewish people. But from now on, you typically see the Lord Jesus, from this point onward, by the sea, by the highways, the byways, the countrysides, the streets. And many people, although I don't think this is the main purpose of the passage, I do think there is some symbolism in it. Many people have commentated that, in some ways, this introduction to this chapter is a symbolic move, where you see the house is typically used to represent the nation of Israel, And others note that the sea is often used to represent the Gentiles. And so, in effect, this chapter serves as a visual reminder that Jesus is, in effect, turning his attention from the nation of Israel and the Jewish people at the time, and he's going to shift his focus and his attention to the Gentiles and offer them the same opportunity to come to know him. And so, because of Israel's rejection, God is now going to shift his attention, and the kingdom of heaven will now be preached to the nations and to the Gentiles. So, in verses 3 through through 9, this is the first parable mentioned. The multitudes are listening. And like I said, I won't be covering these verses. But I just want to touch on one thing. I I want to define what a parable is. For those that are unfamiliar with a parable, a parable, in the best definition I can provide for you, is a earthly story with a heavenly meaning. An earthly story with a heavenly meaning. 
Jesus, when he spoke, he often used things that were earthly. He used things that the crowds could relate to. He uses common things. For example, the wheat and the tare, the mustard seed, types of soil. He uses the leaven, a hidden treasure. Things that were common to the people that they could understand and using the commonly understood things, he could then lay, aso- lay alongside that a spiritual truth. And because the earthly story could be understood, he could then be understood the point he was trying to make in a spiritual sense as well. And a physical story, it gives light and gives understanding to the spiritual truth that he was trying to convey. And so a parable is just simply an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And throughout the rest of the chapter, Jesus will be giving seven parables to teach us what the kingdom of heaven will be like during the time between his first and second coming, the time that we currently live in right now. And so as we reach that, we finally reach verses 10, 10 through 17, where the disciples ask this all-important question, why do you speak to the crowds in parables? And as a speaker and as a nurse, uh, part of my job largely is involved in educating people. I educate people on their health and I educate them on their medications, the side effects that they could, in, in, you know, they could face while they take this medication or the lifestyle choices they could do in order to prevent a second hospitalization. I teach them about how to, uh, you know, how to drain a certain bag they may have. Whatever it may be, these are things that are uncommon to them. These are things they have never learned before. And so a lot of my job is involved with teaching. And I think nothing is more frustrating than when you get to the end of an explanation and you realize that the person you just told everything to has no idea what you said in the beginning. They didn't comprehend a single word you said. It's just frustrating. And the last thing you want to do is trying to convey a point in it, the point not being reached. And so I believe that the disciples, as he spoke to the crowds, the disciples realized that the crowds were not comprehending what he was saying. I think they perceived that they were not tracking fully with what Jesus was saying. And so they asked the question, why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus provides for them three reasons as to why he spoke in parables. The first reason for parables is that it gives insight to the hearers. Parables give insight to the hearers. Verse, 13, or verse 11 tells us this. He answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. Among the crowd, you have those who are genuine followers of Christ, those who will actually hear and receive his words, those who are genuine followers of him. And then on the other hand, you have those who willfully rejected him and his words. And so Jesus is saying to his disciples that, to those that genuinely want to know him, to those who genuinely want to trust his word, he will reveal himself to them. Jesus then reveals to the disciples this mystery of the kingdom of heaven. The mystery being the fact that the kingdom of heaven would have an interim form. That there would be a parenthesis, if you will, between his first and second coming. The parables come to describe that time when the king would be physically absent from the earth. Though he is still in heaven reigning, he is physically absent from literally reigning on this earth right now. This was a time that was not known before. And so to those who followed Christ, 
they had been given a certain amount of light. And with that light that Jesus had shown them, they believed. And so because they believed by faith in the word of God, he then gives them the capacity for more light. However, on the other hand, to the rest of the Jewish people that had been given the same amount of light and who instead of believing rejected that light, it says that he, he says that they won't even be able to receive any more light and even the light they had been given, they will lose. It tells us this in verses 12 and 13, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Which brings us to our second reason for parables. The second reason being that this is, in a sense, an act of judgment by God to judicially blind those who willfully reject his word and willfully reject him. In a sense, it's saying that they would not see, so God will now make it that they will not see. They would not hear, so God will make it so that they will not hear. They would not accept his word when he spoke clearly, so now they will not understand when he speaks in parables. Their willful blindness led to what we call judicial blindness. When Jesus spoke to them clearly without parables, they refused to listen and take heed to his word. So now he will begin in parables so that they will not understand. And a parable without any explanation is nothing more than a riddle. And to those that rejected the light that they had been given, Jesus' words were nothing more than a riddle to them. They couldn't understand it because they were not explained to them. There was no light to reveal the truth behind the parables. And sometimes, when a person persists in rejecting God, when they resist in following him, when they resist and refuse to believe him, God will give them exactly what they want. God is not a controlling God. He does not uh, take away free choice. People have the option to believe in him or not. And oftentimes, God will give men who refuse to listen to him exactly what they wanted. I think about Pharaoh in Exodus, who he heard the words of Moses that were spoken by, really from God through Moses. And it says that Pharaoh, five different occasions, hardened his heart. He hardened his heart against the word of God. And so upon refusing to listen to God, what does God do? It says that God begins to harden Pharaoh's heart for him. He gave Pharaoh exactly what he wanted. It was willful blindness that led to judicial blindness from God. It's seen in Pharaoh's life. It was seen in the lives of the Jewish people of, the, of Jesus' time. And it continues on even today. And it will continue on in the future. They would not see, so God will now figuratively blind their eyes so that they will not see. However, even in the midst of this judgment, I think it's very interesting that even though God is blinding their eyes and it's a judgment upon them, in a sense, God is actually still showing them mercy in a way by blinding their eyes. In the Bible, there is a principle about those who have more light and reject it and how they are judged more harshly for their unbelief than those who have been given less light. We see this in Matthew 11, where Jesus condemns the cities where he has performed many of his miracles and he's performed many of his signs and how he pronounces woes on them. Uh, I think back to Matthew eleven twenty one, 21, where it says, Woe to you, Chorazon, 
Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. These two cities, they had been given more light, more evidence to place their faith in Christ compared to Tyre and Sidon, who had been given not nearly as much light. And if Tyre and Sidon had received that same amount of light, they would have repented long ago. The idea being that when a person receives more light, they have a greater expectation for them to believe in the Lord. And when they don't, it results in a greater judgment for their unbelief. And so the Lord, by blinding the eyes of the Jewish people, is actually, in, in a sense, being merciful and preventing them from being even more responsible than they already are to believe in his words, which would only heap up more judgment upon themselves for their lack of faith in him. So we saw the first two reasons for parables being that it gives sight to the seer and those who will hear, and it blinds judicially those who refuse to hear it. And the third reason and purpose behind parables is that it fulfills the prophecies spoken of in the Old Testament. Verses 14 and 15 tell us this. And to them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and, sh- and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. Isaiah wrote this roughly 700 years before the birth of Christ. The people of Jesus' day were fulfilling the prophecy spoken of in Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. Israel had heard of these words. They had heard of the word of Jesus. They had seen his miracles, but they hardened their hearts. They closed their eyes. They shut their ears to him. They were in need of someone to heal them from their sins, and yet they closed their eyes to him. And yet, despite their miserable state, they rejected the only one who could heal them from it. The only one who could change them. And because they did this, God actually gives them what they wanted. They wanted to refuse his help, so he punishes them by giving them that request. They will not see, they will not perceive. They will hear the words and they will not understand. And in doing so, they have fulfilled the 700-year-old prophecy. But to those that receive the light that God gave them, to those that accept it and place their faith in Christ, it says that those people are blessed. Verses 16 and, 7 say, 16 and 17 say, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly I say to you, many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. The, the, the people, the disciples at Jesus' time, they were so blessed, so fortunate to have the privilege of seeing what the men and the women in the Old Testament had longed to see. And they never had the chance to see it physically with their own eyes. The men in the Old Testament, they had died believing in the promise that one day, one day, down far along the line, the Messiah would come. But they died never physically seeing it with their own eyes nor did they hear him speak with their own ears during their lifetime. Think about it, David, it was promised to him that through his line, through his seed, one would come who would reign forever. And all throughout the Psalms, David is really prophesying about the Messiah coming. You think about uh, Psalm 22, 23, 24, Messianic Psalms. And you read about 
his rejection in it. You read about his crucifixion, his resurrection, and yet he never got to see it. He had longed to see the Lord one day, and yet he never physically saw it. Think about uh, Jeremiah. He prophesied about a Messiah who would come and bring a new covenant. He died never seeing that Messiah physically. You have uh, Daniel who prophesied about the Messiah coming. He died never seeing that fulfillment of, of uh, prophecy coming to pass. Malachi prophesied about a forerunner coming and preparing the way for Jesus, who was John the Baptist. And he never got to see that Messiah ultimately with his own eyes. The point being that all these all these uh, prophets, all these Old Testament characters, they prophesied, they awaited the time when the Messiah would finally come and never got the chance to see it with their own eyes. And now here you have these disciples, these people of Jesus' days, how blessed they are to actually see with their own eyes, to hear him with their own ears. You know, the Old Testament, they had to believe merely just based on, on faith. They, they saw it all through the eyes of faith. But how blessed they were at this, time of, at this period of time to physically see and hear him. And even today, we are blessed and we are privileged, not to the same extent of actually physically seeing him, but we do have his word in both the Old and New Testament. We can discover the Messiah for ourselves. It tells us the full picture of what happened. And to those who place their trust in Christ, he then gives us the third member of the Godhead who dwells within us, the Holy Spirit who will guide us in all truth. He helps us understand his word. We are indwelt by the same Holy Spirit and we are given the same privilege of knowing the Lord. <clears throat> and so, in summary, the purpose of parables it gives insight to the hearers and the believers. It darkens the light of those who refuse to believe him. And it fulfills the prophecies spoken of in the Old Testament. In your life, and in everyone's life, God has each given us a certain amount of light. He has given us an opportunity to trust and believe in the Lord for salvation. But what have you done with the light he's given you? Have you trusted in him? Have you used that light and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Or have you hardened your heart and in doing so, you rejected the light that he gave you? It's my prayer that and hope that you would not reject the Lord Jesus Christ like the people of Israel did in this time, but that you would hear him while he can still be heard and that you would not forsake or turn your eye away from him. I pray that you would see him while he can still be seen, and that you would place your faith in him. If you don't know the Lord today, Jesus is calling out to you today, offering you the same offer of salvation that he offered them back then, if you're only willing, if you're only listening. So my only question to you is, are you listening? Will you hear his voice today? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I just thank you for this wonderful passage that we can really learn so much from, Lord, and seeing your purpose behind parables and Lord, we just look forward to this next few weeks as we look really more carefully at each of these parables and the truth behind it, Lord. I pray that you would just give us understanding and wisdom as we go through each one and that it would really impact our lives and that we would take away a lot from it, Lord. I just thank you for this time that we can spend in your word. In your name I pray. Amen.